Good morning, everybody. In the 1800s, there was a Russian novelist and philosopher named Fyodor Dostoevsky. And in 1880, a year before his death, he published his final book, which would also become his most famous, uh, The Brothers Karamazov. And in the book, one of the characters tells an interesting parable in which Jesus returns to earth in the 1500s in Spain, right in the middle of the Spanish Inquisition, and he's walking through the streets, gathering crowds to himself and healing people. And immediately, a powerful cardinal of the Catholic Church sees this and has Jesus arrested. And then late that night, he goes to visit Jesus in his prison cell and he explains to him that the church has been getting on just fine and that they really don't need him anymore. In fact, he's kind of getting in the way of all the progress the church has made. And at the end of this blasphemous speech, Jesus, without saying a word, gets up, walks over to the cardinal, and gives him a kiss. And the kiss burns in the cardinal's heart, and he immediately opens the prison door to let Jesus out, but then he says, go, go and return no more. Do not come again, never, never and he lets Jesus off into the dark night, and he vanishes from sight. It's a chilling little parable, isn't it? And yeah, there's a pretty glaring theological inaccuracy in it regarding what Christ's second coming is gonna look like, and and obviously the parable is an indictment against the Catholic Church, and we're not Catholic. Nevertheless, I think this parable gives us an opportunity to take a look in the mirror and ask of ourselves, Are there any areas in the life of our church where we find we are getting on just fine without Jesus? Are there any areas in the life of our church where we find that we don't really need Jesus anymore? Are there any areas in the life of our church where we've opted to do things our way instead of God's way, effectively pushing Jesus out I hope we wouldn't be too quick to give an answer to these questions because there are many ways throughout church history in which the people of God have tended to slowly drift away from Christ and the gospel and the way God intends for his church to live out her mission in the world. And it's been happening from the very beginning. Remember the verse where Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Do you know where that verse is found? It's found in Revelation chapter three, smack dab in the middle of a scathing rebuke against a church in Laodicea, the lukewarm Laodiceans, if you remember, who had effectively locked Jesus out of their church. That's why he's standing at the door knocking, because he's not inside. It's not a verse about Jesus knocking on the door of the unbeliever's heart, hoping they'll invite him to come in, though that's the way we've often misused it. It's actually a verse about Christians who have chosen to do things their way instead of God's way and the loving persistence of the Savior to pursue them still. And this was a church in the first century, right? This was a church that existed within the lifetime of the apostles. And if it can happen to them, surely it can happen to us. 
And so this morning through Zechariah's fifth night vision, we're gonna be talking about the church's mission in the world and how we can be sure that we're doing things God's way and by God's power. But before we get into it, let me pray for us. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, as we approach this passage of scripture we're gonna be looking at, which is admittedly quite difficult to understand, Lord, I just, I ask for a special measure of grace to be upon my hearers, and I ask that you would anoint my lips to proclaim this word with clarity and with spirit power, Lord. Lord, we need your help much more than we know, so help us now, amen. All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn in it to Zechariah chapter four. If you turn to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, and then turn back a few pages, you'll find Zechariah chapter four. And since it's been a while since I last preached, let me get us all up to speed on where we're at in Old Testament history. So, in 931 BC, there was a split in the nation of Israel, God's covenant people, into a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah, okay? Israel, Judah. And unfortunately, almost all the kings who went on to reign in Israel and Judah were wicked kings and just plunged their kingdoms deeper and deeper into sin. And so, God raised up prophets to speak on his behalf and to warn these kingdoms of his coming judgment upon them if they would not repent of their sin and return to him which is precisely what they did not do. And so, in 722 BC, God raised up the Assyrians to come against Israel, to conquer them and take them into exile as punishment for their sin. And then in 586 BC, God sent the Babylonians to do the exact same thing to the southern kingdom of Judah, which is the nation in focus here in the book of Zechariah. And then here's what happened after the exile of Judah. In 562 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon dies and Babylon begins to fall apart. And then 23 years later, uh, King Cyrus II of Persia, it's, it's 539, he conquers Babylon. And then a year later in 538 BC, he issues a decree that all of the exiles in Babylon are allowed to return to their homelands. And Ezra chapter two tells us that At that time, over 42,000 Judeans returned to the land of Judah under the leadership of a guy named Sheshbazar. But when the Judeans return to the land of Judah, all they see is a ransacked wasteland of rubble and ruins. And they become spiritually depressed and deeply discouraged about their future as a nation. And then Sheshbazar dies, but he's succeeded by his nephew Zerubbabel. Remember that name, Zerubbabel. We'll be talking about it later. He's succeeded by Zerubbabel, and then under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, the people build an altar and make a sacrifice to God on the ruins of the old temple, the place where God's presence dwelt among his people. And in 536 BC, they lay the foundations of the new temple, okay? 
However, shortly thereafter, the Samaritans begin to oppress them in their building project and they incessantly harass them for 16 long years. And for 16 long years, the Judeans stop working on the temple altogether. But then, in 520 BC, a cease and desist decree comes down from the new king of Persia, King Darius I, which basically says, Samaritans, leave the Judeans alone, let them rebuild their temple in peace. And then, that same year, God sends the prophet Haggai to his people. And Haggai, if you remember, he delivers a very practical, down-to-earth, here's what you are doing and here's what you should be doing kind of message to basically give the Judeans a kick in the pants to get rebuilding the temple again. And then God sends the prophet Zechariah to his people just a couple months later. And something that's really unique about Zechariah's prophetic ministry is that God gave him eight night visions or dreams in which he was shown symbolic images of the ways heaven will be meeting earth and God will be coming to redeem his people. And over the last few sermons in Zechariah, we've seen the man among the myrtles in the first night vision, which told us about God's presence and the paradise restoration to come among his people. And we've seen the horn-crushing craftsman in the second night vision, which told us about God's punishment which will come upon all worldly and heaven-challenging powers. And we've seen the man with the measuring line in the third night vision, which told us about God's precise and perfect plan, which will be fulfilled for his people. And then last time we saw the royal reclother in the fourth night vision, which told us about God's purification, which would come through Christ to his people. And now, this morning in the fifth night vision, uh, we'll see the mighty menorah oil, which will tell us about God's power, which will come through the Holy Spirit to his people. And this night vision basically unfolds in four parts. Uh, First, Zechariah receives a vision and requests its interpretation, verses one through five. And then Zechariah is given an interpretation, verses six through 10. And then Zechariah requests further interpretation, verses 11 through 13. And then lastly, Zechariah is given further interpretation in verse 14. So let's start with verses one through five. Zechariah receives a vision and requests its interpretation. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Okay, so here, Zechariah's interpreting angel who's been guiding him through all these night visions, he brings him to a golden lampstand. The Hebrew word for it is menorah. And the menorah was one of the objects in the tabernacle, which was the big portable tent where God's presence dwelt among his people after the exodus. The tabernacle. 
And in Exodus chapter 25, we learn that the menorah in the tabernacle was basically a giant candlestick having a center trunk with six branches coming off of it and, and little cups at the end of each branch that were sculpted to look like flowers, each of which held an oil lamp. And in Exodus chapter 27, we learned that the people of Israel were to bring olive oil to the tabernacle priests to keep the menorah burning continuously day and night. So if you think about it, the menorah being a stylized tree in the tabernacle, the place of God's presence, hearkened back to the original place of God's presence here on earth in the Garden of Eden and the tree of life that was there in the midst of it. But here's something else that's interesting. John chapter one tells us, in the New Testament, tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, became flesh and dwelt skenao among us. The word literally means tabernacled. He became flesh and tabernacled among us. John 1.14, meaning Jesus is the tabernacle presence of God in the flesh. And John also says that Jesus was the light who came into this world of darkness. And of course, Jesus said of himself in John 8.12, I am the light of the world. Whoever comes to me or whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so, the menorah and the tabernacle, both in their own way, prefigured or foreshadowed Jesus, who became to this world, lost in darkness and dead in sin, the light, illuminating in himself the way to God, and who became the new tree of everlasting life by being hung on a cursed tree of death. But here's something else, which is pretty amazing. Through receiving the life that Jesus died to give, we're not only called out of the darkness into God's marvelous light, 1 Peter 2.9, but Matthew 5.14 says that we actually become light to the world as the presence of God and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us and shines through us. So, the tabernacle menorah also prefigured the church, the people of God, all Christians of all time, whose mission for the last 2,000 years has been to shine the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And there are two little details in the text which reinforce this menorah church connection. Number one, the menorah Zechariah saw in this night vision was no ordinary menorah. Because if we read the text carefully, we see that it had, verse two, seven lamps with seven lips on each of the lamps. So seven times seven, most commentators agree that this menorah had 49 lamps. And what's significant about the number 49 in the Bible? Might sound like a strange question, but there is something. There were a number of Sabbath laws in Old Testament Israel, if you remember. One of the laws was that every seventh day of the week, the Israelites were to rest from their work, the Sabbath day. And another law was that every seventh year, the land was supposed to rest from its work 
meaning the Israelites were not to plant or harvest any crops to give the land a break from its work. It was called the Sabbath year or the sabbatical year. And another law stated that after seven cycles of Sabbath years, seven times seven, 49 years, the following year would be what they called the year of Jubilee. You heard of that? The year of Jubilee. In the words of one commentator, the year of Jubilee was to be a time of celebration and rejoicing for the Israelites. For it was a year of redemption from indebtedness and all types of bondage. All prisoners and captives were set free. All slaves were released. All debts were forgiven. All property was returned to its original owners and all labor was to cease for one year. Now with that in mind, listen to the words of Luke chapter four, verses 16 through 21. I'm sure you've heard this before too. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is synonymous with the year of Jubilee. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This passage tells us that the Old Testament year of Jubilee was a type of and pointer to the Jubilee redemption that Christ came to accomplish. Forgiveness of our debts, of sin, and freedom from our enslavement to sin and rest in him. And so, I think this 49-lamped super menorah Zachariah sees was symbolically pointing forward to the church, all those who would receive this jubilee redemption in Christ. Okay, and a second little detail in the passage, this super menorah Zachariah sees has, verses two and three, a bowl on top of it, which is flanked by two olive trees, one on its right and another on its left. And what we'll see later in the night vision is that these olive trees are pouring oil directly into this bowl without the assistance of the priests. Now in the Bible, oil is often used as a symbol for the Holy Spirit's presence and power. That's why prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament were anointed with oil to symbolize that the Spirit rested upon them. And then in the New Testament, at Pentecost, Acts chapter two, we see for the first time in history the Holy Spirit being poured out upon all of God's people. He's coming to rest upon and dwell in all of them, an event that was foretold by the prophet Joel. And so I think the image here of the menorah being poured into by these two olive trees with a seemingly unending flow of oil is again pointing forward to the church who would be filled with and supplied by the inexhaustible fuel and power of the Holy Spirit. 
Okay, let's move on to verses six through 10. Zechariah is given an interpretation. Then he, the interpreting angel, said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, his hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. All right, so the first part of this interpretation points us to Zerubbabel, the guy I asked you to remember, the guy who helped lead the Judeans in their temple rebuilding project after the exile. And here's the word of the Lord concerning him. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Have you heard that verse before? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, meaning the power of God's people lies not in the strength of their hands, but in the sovereign sway of God's spirit. If you're taking notes this morning, write this down. The power of God's people lies not in the strength of their hands, but in the sovereign sway of God's spirit. And then the next thing that's said is this, verse 7a, who are you? Or who do you think you are? O great mountain, before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And I think this personified mountain who's being challenged here is probably a metaphor for some kind of obstacle which God by his spirit will remove. And because in the Old Testament the word mountain is sometimes used to describe the enemies of God and his people who think they're real big and strong and immovable, I think this passage is saying that the enemies of God's people who are presently a mountain obstacle will soon be an obstacle no longer because they will be leveled to a plain. Okay? And then the next thing that's said is this, verse 7b. And he, Zerubbabel, shall bring forward the top stone, or capstone, the final stone, amid shouts of grace, grace to it. So, when Zerubbabel brings forward the final stone to complete the temple, there will be shouts of grace, grace to it, which is a petition for God's blessing to rest upon it. And then the next thing that's said is this, verses eight and nine. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, his hands shall also complete it. Then you will know, listen to this carefully, this is God speaking. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So God seems to be saying that at the time the temple is completed, his people will know that God has sent him to his people. Which doesn't make any sense unless we understand that this must be Christ himself, the sent one of God the Father. 
Okay, we'll talk about that more in a bit. Let's, let's move on to verse 10. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Now, to understand this despising of the day of small things, uh, we have to go to the book of Ezra where we read the account of what happened when the Judeans laid the foundation of the new temple. This is Ezra chapter three, verses 11b through 13a. Listen to this. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. So while some of the Judeans shouted for joy at the laying of the foundation of the new temple, many of the older men who had been alive to see the first temple wept. And they wept because Solomon's temple was glorious. A work of art, a thing of opulence and grandeur and beauty. But now the Judeans were starting all over as a nation that just came back from exile. For many, this was a day of small things, a day of seemingly little significance, you know, compared to their glory days. But in the midst of their despising, the Judeans received this encouraging promise regarding the temple from the prophet Haggai in Haggai chapter two, verse nine. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Now, we know from the book of Ezra that when this second temple was completed, it paled in comparison to the glory and grandeur of the first temple. It was never greater than the former. But what we talked about at length when we looked at the book of Haggai about 10 months ago was that Haggai was looking forward to another temple to come. Not a temple built by human hands, but the spiritual temple, that is, the church. First Peter chapter, five verse, or, uh, chapter two, verse 5a says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a spiritual temple. So now that under the new covenant, the Holy Spirit is pleased to dwell not in a physical temple building, but within us by the Holy Spirit, we are called God's temple. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? 1 Corinthians 6.19. And so I think this passage here in Zechariah is ultimately, it's, it's ultimately speaking of Zerubbabel typologically meaning Zerubbabel is being used here as a type of and pointer to another leader of God's people, another Zerubbabel, if you will, who was to come and who would be the builder of the spiritual temple, the church. And we learn who this is when we hear Jesus saying plainly in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then here at the end of verse 10a, this comment about the plumb line 
in Zerubbabel's hand, which was a little weight on a string used in building to create a, a vertical reference line. You know, a plumb bob, yeah, plumb line. I think this is ultimately saying or telling us that the Zerubbabel antitype to come will build the spiritual temple according to exact specifications and measurements, which was part of the message of Zechariah's third night vision where we saw Christ as the man with the measuring line. And then the last part of this interpretation section says this, verse 10b. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. And you might hear the number seven and immediately connect it to the tabernacle menorah, but actually most commentators think that this is simply referring to the perfection of God's all-seeing vision. Uh, seven being a number, a symbolic number for perfection in the Bible. And so, in the context of all that's just been said, I think this is intended to encourage us that the all-seeing God will be dutifully watchful to ensure that these promises will be fulfilled. Okay? Let's move on to verses 11 through 13. Zechariah requests further interpretation. Then I, Zechariah, said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. So something we learn that's pretty stunning here is that this isn't even regular old oil. This is golden oil, which is certainly making a statement about its uniqueness and value. But notice that the golden oil isn't Zachariah's particular focus here. He's interested in these two trees from which the golden oil is flowing. And here's the answer he receives as to their identity. In the last section of this night vision, verse 14, Zachariah is given further interpretation. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, I think that in the immediate historical context, these two anointed ones are most likely Zerubbabel and Joshua. But, since we know that this entire night vision is pointing us forward to things to come, and that Zerubbabel, the acting king in Judah, and Joshua, the high priest in Judah, and even Zechariah himself, the prophet in, in Judah, were all types of and pointers to the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. Christos, anointed one, that's what, that's what Christ means, anointed one. Because of this, I think this passage ultimately must point us forward to Jesus himself, who at Pentecost would pour out upon his church the golden oil that is his spirit. And that's Zechariah's fifth night vision. And man, it is not an easy one to figure out. <laughs> but something that encourages me is that this whole night vision unfolds as Zechariah's struggle to understand what he's seeing, right? 
He has to keep asking questions and he has to keep admitting to the interpreting angel that he has no idea what he's looking at. And that just reminds me that sometimes God's revelation isn't easy to figure out and that's okay. And in the moment we should simply admit that we lack understanding and ask for God's help rather than, you know, give up or jump to a wrong conclusion or something else. And if you're still feeling a little confused by all this, um, what I wanna do is I wanna draw out just three points from this passage, which will hopefully tie some things together and help us understand you know, what this means for us today, okay? Three points. Number one, the church, symbolized by the menorah, is the light of the world. The church, symbolized by the menorah, is the light of the world. Uh, Throughout the Bible, the world is described as a place of darkness. And the people of the world, fallen man, dead in sin, are described as lovers of the darkness and haters of the light. John chapter three, verses 19 and 20 says this, the light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And you know what? Before God got a hold of us, that was us. We were no different. But Colossians chapter one, verse 13 says that he has delivered us rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of light. And how did he do this? Second Corinthians chapter four, verse six. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, or let there be light at creation, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God, through someone's proclamation of the gospel to us, spoke into the darkness of our dead hearts, let there be light, and it was so. And then as light bearers, he made us the light of the world, Matthew 5, 14. He says, you are the light of the world. And as the light of the world, he made us to shine like the menorah in the tabernacle, which lit the way of passage from the altar, the place of judgment and death outside the tabernacle where sacrifices for sin were made from the altar to the mercy seat, the place of pardon and life inside the tabernacle where God's presence dwelt. And as just a side note, in Solomon's temple, this was conceptually even more dramatic because Solomon's temple had 10 menorahs, 10, arranged in two rows of five, like like lights on an airport runway, forming a very intentional passageway into the presence of God. But now, it's the church, Christians, who light the way of passage from the cross where the final sacrifice for sin was made to the throne of grace. That is the church's mission to the world, to illuminate the way through Jesus by which fallen man can move from death and darkness outside the presence of God into life and light and love in the presence of God, right? So here are two applications for us. Number one, be faithful 
to the mission. Be faithful to the mission. Now, there are a couple ways we can get this wrong and become unfaithful to the mission. One way is by slightly changing the gospel message, usually by taking something away from it or by diluting it or by only emphasizing certain aspects of it like the love or the blessings of God in an attempt to make it more appealing to those who hate the light which quickly results in pushing the true gospel and the real Jesus out and then attracting people to a different gospel and to a Jesus we've created, which is just the most ungodly and unloving thing we could ever do. Or another way is by subtly censoring the gospel message, usually by believing that we've sufficiently witnessed to someone by, by simply loving them and by caring for their physical and emotional needs, which of course is a good and godly thing, but ultimately on its own neglects that person's infinitely more important spiritual needs, leaving them dead in their sin and, and estranged from God and without real hope. And I think both of these pitfalls are a constant temptation because the gospel is not an easy message to share because it's a confrontational message by nature. It's the message that our lifetime of sin against the holy God who created us is so heinous, so damnable that God and Jesus had to come to earth and die for it in order to save us from it. And because of this, Jesus is the only way of salvation for those who will repent turn away from their sins and cast themselves upon the mercy of Jesus. It's the greatest news in the whole world, but it assaults our pride and egotism and it exposes the deep wells of deceit and darkness within our hearts. So, what's our motivation for being faithful to the mission. Well, I think we can learn a lot from Jesus himself, whose message attracted fewer than it turned away, and who was constantly escaping the crowds when he became aware that his message was being misunderstood. Jesus never, never changed his message in an attempt to make it more appealing to people, and as a result, he became such an unpopular guy in the eyes of the world that they put him to death. And really, I think it's this, it's the cross which reminds us that Jesus didn't just come to care for physical and emotional needs as he did in his healings and miracles, but he came ultimately to live, die, and rise for sin, to care for our spiritual needs, which all of those healings and miracles were symbolic pictures of and pointers to. They were all physical representations of greater spiritual realities. And so, to put it simply, as beneficiaries, recipients of another's faithful mission, which was inherently spiritual, we ought to be faithful in our mission, which is inherently spiritual as well. Let me say that one more time. As beneficiaries of another's faithful mission, which was inherently spiritual, 
we ought to be faithful in our mission, which is inherently spiritual as well, okay? Second application, prepare your heart for persecution. Prepare your heart for persecution. Jesus said this in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. The world system hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, your master, they will also persecute you, my servants. Again, the world hates the light. And Jesus said that you, Christian, are the light. And so love the people of this world well by sharing the good news of the gospel and expect that like Jesus, you may not be loved in return. Prepare your heart for persecution. Second point from this passage in Zechariah. The Holy Spirit, symbolized by the menorah oil, is the church's power. The Holy Spirit, symbolized by the menorah oil, is the church's power. As we said earlier, the power of God's people lies not in the strength of their hands, but in the sovereign sway of God's spirit. Do you believe it? When Abraham's wife Sarah conceived and gave birth to Isaac at the ripe age of 90, was it by her power or by the sovereign sway of God's spirit? And when the Israelites escaped Egypt in the Exodus and the army of Pharaoh was destroyed, was it by their power or by the sovereign sway of God's spirit? And when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked out of a fiery furnace unscathed, was it by their power or by the sovereign sway of God's spirit? And when you, Christian, were made spiritually alive when you were spiritually dead, was it by your power or by the sovereign sway of God's spirit? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So here are two applications for us. Number one, do not fear your mountain obstacles. Do not fear your mountain obstacles. You know what they are in your life. We face all sorts of obstacles all around us all the time. In the workplace, at school, in marriage, in parenting, in our own hearts and minds, all sorts of obstacles all around us all the time. And there are generally three ways we respond to mountain obstacles in our life. Either we compare the obstacles to ourselves and we think that these obstacles are bigger than us. Or we think that, no, actually we are bigger than our obstacles. Or we think that God is bigger than our obstacles, right? So the first two compare the obstacles to ourselves and remove God from the picture completely and inevitably end in either being crushed when we can't overcome our obstacles or being puffed up with pride when we do overcome our obstacles. But the third response compares the obstacles to God 
and puts God at the center of the picture and trusts that it is not by human might or power that mountain obstacles are leveled to a plane, but by the, by the sovereign spirit of God for whom no obstacle is any problem. Not barrenness, not enslavement, not even death itself. Do you believe it? Do you want that kind of spirit power? Jesus made this remarkable promise in Matthew 17, 20. He said, for truly, for truly, I say to you, if you have faith, even like a tiny grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. What's that thing in your life? What's that mountain obstacle standing in your path? Jesus reminds us that the secret to courage and spirit power in the face of it is faith. And not even a great amount of faith, just a little faith in our great God. Amen? And to that end, here's a wonderful truth to encourage us. In Christ, our greatest obstacle and our greatest enemy, our own mountain of sin which condemned us to eternal death has already been removed, leveled to a plane. And if God can remove that mountain, what mountain in our life can't he remove? Do not fear your mountain obstacles. Second application, do not despise the day of small things. Do not despise the day of small things. Here's another wonderful truth and something you should definitely write down if you're taking notes. God is pleased to use small things to accomplish great work. God is pleased to use small things to accomplish great work. Remember Joseph in the book of Genesis? He had a few days of small things, didn't he? He was despised by his brothers who faked his death and sold him into slavery. And then he was wrongfully accused of rape and thrown into prison. But God had a plan and purpose for all of it, which included Joseph being able to preserve the lives of many people, including his own brothers, during a famine. And at the end of all of it, Joseph was able to look back and then say directly to his brothers, what you did to me was evil, but God intended it for good. Or how about Gideon in the book of Judges? I love this story. He gathered 32,000 fighting men to go to battle against 132,000 Midianites. But then God said, Gideon, you have too many men. And so Gideon winnowed them down to 10,000. But then God said, Gideon, you still have too many men. And then eventually Gideon went out to battle against the Midianites with only 300 fighting men and won. Or how about the little shepherd boy David in 1 Samuel? While the army of Israel was cowering on the sidelines, this little boy David goes out to battle against Goliath in the strength of the Lord and defeats the giant with only a stone and a sling. And time and time again, we see that God uses small things, bad situations, 
broken people, weak people, young people, God uses small things to accomplish great work. I love this passage too, 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29 says that God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the strong and the lowly and despised things of the world to shame those things that the world thinks are so important. And why does he do this? Because when God does something amazing through unlikely means and against impossible odds, it leaves no doubt in our minds that it was God who did it, which leaves no one able to take the glory for themselves but to give it only to God. And so, be encouraged by this. If you are small, I know a big God who can use you. And if you are weak, I know an all-powerful God who can use you. And if you will come today to him empty-handed and humbly in faith, Jesus promises that you will become a conduit of the Spirit's power, the same power that brought life out of a barren womb and parted the Red Sea and raised Christ from the dead and raised you from the dead when you first believed and were saved. And so, do not despise the day of small things because God is pleased to use small things to accomplish great work. And the third and final point from the passage, Christ, typified by Zerubbabel, is the builder of the spiritual temple. Christ, typified by Zerubbabel, is the builder of the spiritual temple temple. Just as Zerubbabel was commissioned to build the temple and upon its completion God would return to dwell among his people there, so Christ is the builder of the spiritual temple, the church. And upon its completion we learned from Zechariah's first night vision of the man among the myrtles that he'll return to bring a paradise restoration to all the earth and to make his home here with us. On that day, there will be shouts of grace, grace to the church. And the elders and creatures before the throne of God and the Lamb will sing a new song saying, Revelation chapter five, verses nine and 10, worthy, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Hear that? One day this jubilee redemption and church construction that Jesus accomplished will be the cause of great worship and praise from the lips of angels. And if that isn't amazing enough, Here's something else that's amazing. In the process of building his church, Jesus doesn't need us at all. And yet, he invites us to come, to participate in this great thing he's doing. In fact, we're commanded. We're commanded to join him and to go into all the world, making disciples of all nations, which is only possible, only possible because God goes before us preparing the way because ultimately he is building his church, not us. And so here are two 
really brief applications for us. Number one, let's join God in what he's doing. Let's join God in what he's doing. You know, sometimes we, we think that God is a part of our mission or that God is a part of our story. And it's a very self-centered or, or self-centric and wrong way of viewing things because this is God's world, not ours. And he is the author of this story, not us. And so instead of inviting God to come along on whatever great thing we're doing, we ought to first see that it is God who has invited us to come along on the great thing he is doing, and then we ought to try to align what we're doing with what God is doing. And so let's join God in the great thing he is doing, which by his grace has included us in a remarkable way. And number two, second application, let's do things God's way. Let's do things God's way. Real simply, if we've joined God in the great thing he's doing in the world, let's stay behind him as he prepares the way and not try to get out ahead of him with our own ingenious plans or our own creative spin on things or by relying on or trusting in our marketing skills or our persuasiveness or our attractiveness or whatever to build the church. We know who the power is, the Holy Spirit. And we know what the power is, the gospel. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so let's stay close to the power and let's do things God's way so that we don't become like a menorah trying to shine without the oil. Or like a church where Jesus is now standing on the outside knocking on our door because through doing things our way instead of his way, we've effectively pushed Jesus out. And here's an encouragement for us. When we are faithful to do things God's way, he is faithful to supply the means and the power to do what he has called us to do. Hear that? Why would he call us to do it otherwise? When we are faithful to do things God's way, he is faithful to supply the means and the power to do what he has called us to do. And so let's do things God's way. And so in closing, we see that Zechariah's fifth night vision of the mighty menorah oil points us forward to Christ's outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon his church to empower her in her mission to shine the light of the glory of the gospel to the ends of the earth until that day when Christ finishes building his church and he returns to recreate the earth and make his home here with us. On that day, we're told that every shadow will be banished forever and every mountain obstacle will be leveled to a plain and every day of small things will turn to a day of rejoicing because the God of glory will invade this world totally with the light of his holy presence. And so, 
you see that today, as we, the church, worldwide, shine the light into the darkness by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are foreshadowing this great day to come when heaven meets earth and God reigns as our eternal light over all creation. And man, what a, what a privilege, what a joy to be part of such a great thing God is doing. And so let's pray for faithfulness. Let's pray that Jesus will be exalted through us and let's pray for his kingdom and his power and his glory to come. Amen? Amen. Amen. Will you guys stand with me as we close our service in prayer? Lord God, what an honor to be your light bearers in this dark world. And Lord, what a comfort to know that we are not shining alone, but that we, as Cedar Home Baptist Church, we're just a grain of sand in the ocean of the millions upon millions of believers worldwide in the billions who've come before us. Lord, you have been building your church and you will continue to build your church until you've determined the work is finished. And so as we await and long for that day, Lord, give us the grace to just be faithful to you and to trust not in our own might or power, but in your Holy Spirit, especially in the face of mountain obstacles and, and when we feel small and weak, Lord. Lord, when we are weak, you are strong. So be our strength in your name for your glory alone. Amen. All right, go in the grace of God.